Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. As we always do in the third hour of Tuesdays, we bring with us Lewis and Hugh Holman. Hugh won't be with us today. He'll be with us next week. That means, again, Lewis Holman and I operating without adult supervision. We can end our sentences with prepositions. We can mix metaphors, although you never do. I I often do. Lewis Holman is with us, 602-508-0960. He is, among other things, the managing director at Insight Analytics, Insight Analytics, LLC. We... um. I, I, Lewis, this is kind of funny. You know, sometimes I don't know if people come up to you hearing you or or whatever in public or from the show or other places, and they they probably ask you sometimes what I get asked, which is how do you prepare for what you're you're going to say? And I said I think the right answer is I've been doing it for 50 years, you know, and it's just everything I kind of take in and, and that sort of thing. And to that end, you and I really never do any show prep. Neither does, does Hugh that much. We just uh, you have a lot on your mind. So I'll start. What's what's on your mind? Well, Seth, uh, several things are are on my mind. Um, I think the most pressing thing on my mind right now is the so-called great resignation, the phenomenon that the media has coined to explain the uh, the massive exodus from the labor force by millions of Americans. Um, I think in August of this year, we had 2.4 million Americans leave their jobs, which is an all-time record. Uh, over the pandemic, generally, I think we're down about 2 or 3 million unemployed workers with a further, as of the end of 2020, million workers entering retirement earlier than we had anticipated. So given that we're at the end of another year, there's probably another million more of those that's happened since then. So roundabout, we're talking about maybe four or five million workers out of the American labor market since the start of the pandemic that we have net lost. And that actually represents a pretty significant total. You know, we, we have in the U.S. labor market about I think about 150 million workers typically ballpark. So, you know, we're talking about on the order of about three or three and a half percent of the entire labor force has left, which is kind of shocking to think about. That's typically an unemployment rate is about three percent. And we have just shed that. Mm -hmm. So. On this, we have uh, uh, not only tremendous unemployment as COVID restrictions have and, and the rise of unemployment benefits have made people decide that it's easier to be paid not to work than work and that their their trade-offs are just better spent elsewhere. We now also have significant inflation coming. Now, the 2020 inflation numbers were about 1.5%, fairly historical for the U.S. average, but ever since April we have seen very, very high inflation. The annual figure now is kicked up to 5.3%, which is really quite high as far as inflation goes. That's very, very high inflation. And what worries me personally about all of this, Seth, is that we are staring down the largest single government expenditure 
of any government in all of human history in this new set of infrastructure bills, which are, again, about – they originally proposed $3.5 on top of our normal government right. spending. And I think now, after some cuts, they're sitting at about $2.2 2 if memory serves, which is still – Basically, a whole other federal government's expenditure that when we are now. When you put it all together, we're looking at this annual budget this year coming in somewhere close to six trillion dollars. Yeah, it's an unfathomable amount of money. And so, with this, with this high unemployment, with this now high inflation, and now staring down the barrel of a six trillion dollar expenditure this fiscal year, you know, I. I'm rather worried that we're facing down what in the 1970s was described as stagflation, mm-hmm. which is really quite a lot of these conditions all mixed together in a way that is very, very difficult to unwind. And instead of trying to deal with these issues, we're doubling down on rhetoric and promises that were made in the delusionary days of nine months ago that, are, that weren't relevant then and are even less relevant to our success now. And it seems that, that there's no way to turn the ship. So there's two questions that I have immediately, which is, one, do you think some of this is knowingly and in some cases unknowingly deliberate? Unknowingly deliberate meaning people can be sold on ideas and buy into them without understanding the underlying principles. There has been an effort, oh, probably forever, but taken seriously in America since the 60s on the left by scholar promoted by scholars that wrote in socialist mag, uh, magazines like The Nation. I'm thinking of people like uh, Richard uh, Cloward and Francis Piven who would write about breaking the system, expanding the welfare state so greatly that it, it burdens itself and we collapse our system of economics. There's some of that, I wonder, if you think that's animating certain principles of this. The other thing I wanted to throw on, put on the table in response is kind of interesting. We have a government that knows this is going on. Whether responsible or not, they know this is going on. And so their latest, tying it a little bit to the COVID situation, their latest effort to dealing with COVID, not really the issue of employment or unemployment, but with COVID, is to threaten more unemployment. And I think that kind of goes partway excuse me, partway towards answering the first question. But I put a couple things on there. I'd love your response. So uh, let, me, let me sort of start at the end and we'll work sure. our way backwards. Sure. So part of the issue, I think, is that Congress people and, and legislators generally are almost always immune from the consequences of their legislation. They, they, you know, the, the electoral system in this country has about a 90% chance to uh, reelect any incumbents. And so I call it a recidivism, right? You know, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's a tremendous challenge, though. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have a very short attention span our, ourselves and holding together the past two or four or six years worth of misdeeds that any given elected official has and then holding them to task to that in a cogent and simple way during the campaign season is actually phenomenally difficult. I, I actually almost never see it done well. And so... I think that's part of it. And and back to the first part of your question, I think it opens up, if you'd like, uh, a really great topic on the nature of conspiracy generally. Sure. But in in my thinking, you know, I, I try never to attest top-down malice to complex systems. I okay. think that that's the wrong way to think about things. And I think that presenting your arguments in those terms makes it very easy for your opposition to just – 
dismiss you as a crazy conspiracy theorist. And tell me about the top. Give us an example or, or, or uh, fill, fill but, that So, so what I would time. say, though, instead uh, uh, is, is exactly something like you proposed okay. where it's, it's we have a network of people, you know, 435 congressmen, 100 senators, and then a few thousand upper level staffers, diplomats and bureaucrats who then are, are – really unresponsive to our incentive to, to 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 us and have their own incentives. They want to be reelected. They want to to advance their interests. They want to help their friends. They want to respond to those industries that that they are close to. And the average Joe very often doesn't come into these calculations. Right. And so it's less that they are top down looking to 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 to, to harm us in this conspiratorial way and more that they are so busy looting and enriching themselves off of these small, petty, le- you know, legislative in- adventures that they have, that they don't stop to consider the true magnitude of the effects that they Consequences have. Consequences are irrelevant, right? Okay, okay, understood. At least that's how that's how I, I, yeah, no, I no, think. No, 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 understood. Okay, so so tending not to go with that kind of analysis, you would rather say what? So I I would rather simply say that you know uh. Bernie Sanders has made a, a wonderful media niche for himself, you know, proposing uh, uh, fabulously exorbitant bills without any heed to cost or mathematical possibility or anything like that. And so he's been very well rewarded for this. So he's got no incentive to change his behavior. He's just going to keep advancing these kind of ludicrous propositions over and over again. Why wouldn't he? He's got Why more wouldn't popular. he? Precisely. Right. There doesn't like he doesn't need to hate you in order for, you know for this to be his pr- principal motivation. He can just have had success under this policy and, and, and under this strategy, and then simply just be repeating the strategy. Why need we attribute hatred, malice, or conspiracy thinking to what is effectively just? bureaucrats often in ivory tower someplace making decisions without fully understanding their consequences. Well, that's a great point because let me let me see if this if you agree with this if, as a supplement to it. I think Bernie Sanders takes himself very seriously. I think he does too. I think he believes what he says. Sure. Now, if you're him, I'll go to break on this and we'll talk about it on the other side in white collars. If you're him, you kind of look at your career and the things you've been saying. I don't think his message has changed that much. Well, he's sincere and he's consistent. When he was elected Congress, media wrote him off as a joke. There's so many R's, there's so many D's, and then there's Bernie Sanders, the socialist, right? This was, he was the joke. And then all of a sudden time happens and he's got – instead of one – we've got – instead of one socialist in, the, in, in, in elected office in the Congress, he now has six. He now has six. He's only grown, gotten stronger. And instead of being a, a laugh line – he was within inches of becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party twice. If you're him, what what reason would you not keep going stronger and stronger? The media is making him stronger and stronger, and he's getting the forces. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Lewis Holman with us as we do every Tuesday. Hugh will be rejoining us next week. He is on travel abroad and didn't think he could get here on time. I still think the chances are awfully slim, but Lewis will, Lewis will cover the, the family name. I was going to the break saying if you're Bernie Sanders or really anyone in his coterie of, of supporters, um, you've been rewarded uh, – over the years, you were the lone voice and the mocked voice who became really 
maybe the most dominant figure in the Democratic Party and increased your socialist membership in Congress from one to now six, which right. is a which is a big change over the course of just a few years. So why wouldn't he continue? Why wouldn't they continue? What's stopping them? Let me Very add, little, it turns Let me add another, yeah, another layer to this, please. if I can. Yeah. So not only do you have that issue where you've got Bernie Sanders is, is coder, you know, becoming more and more successful and expanding, but then if you're a regular establishment Democrat, you have to deal with this emerging threat on your left mm-hmm. – understand that an increasing part of your base is resonant with that and you have to adjust your positions to get in front of it, which has accelerated the Democratic Party's general drive towards the left and is why we see Joe Biden about as milk toast and unoriginal as it is possible to be at the head of this massive spending uh, spree, which would have been out of character for him legislatively before his presidency. It would have been out of character with most people, right? I, I, I would think even in the Democratic Party at, at one point because, because a lot of it simply is going to lead to greater unemployment, greater inflation, greater every ill in the economic universe you can think of, which is why I'm wondering if part of the intellectual undergirding of this, why I asked if it's your thought, though you don't love these kind of analyses – if that isn't the intellectual basis underneath it, which is, no, we, we want people on welfare. Bernie Sanders says bread lines are a good thing. There used to be a joke, I think it was Barat or someone who said, oh, well, you know, don't you want more people on welfare? Right. Right. But absolutely. That thinking. So but but, you know, along this as well, keep in mind that the, the constituents that, that politicians answer to on their day to day life are not actually their constituents. Right. Not actually Joe Schmo you know, from from Tempe, Arizona, it's going to be members of the media class. It's going to be lobbyists, right? The people that 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 congressmen are going to be interacting with that are giving them the direct feedback on their policy are going to be, again, you know, the same people who are pushing and advocating for it. So a CNN writer wants the Democrats to, to spend $2.5 trillion on infrastructure because that's a news story. Like it, it, it keeps the whole machine running, provided that everyone goes along and does their piece. And as long as you're not the unfortunate last senator, when the entire economic system collapses, you can get away with it. You just have to not be the person, you know, with, you know, last, left it, last when, one, the, when the music the lights before, exactly. before the power company turns them off on you for lack of payment. You and I were looking to your earlier point at the uh, the handy data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the latest uh, employment report. To your point, unemployment rates for states, it's it's I think explanatory of almost everything economically. But it, you, if you look at the highest unemployment levels in the states, uh, in the 50 states, the highest level is 7.7 percent unemployment. And there's a lot of states in the sevens and sixes. They are blue states. They right. are blue states. We're talking Nevada, California, New Mexico, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, District of Columbia is added there. So another one, Pennsylvania. Um, and if you look at the top of the list, if you look at who's in the 2.2 percentage uh, area, who's in the twos and threes, these are red states. You are talking Utah, Idaho, South Dakota, Alabama, Georgia, North Dakota, and states like that. And this is exactly what you would expect. As we as we were saying earlier, the blue states are the ones that held extended uh, uh, unemployment benefits longer, and, and people react to these incentives. This is exactly what we would have predicted. 
the interesting thing about some of this is I was taken aback when I saw that the state with the worst unemployment was Nevada. Sure. And it's it's actually – to say it's the worst is unfair because it's actually tied. <laughs> it's tied for the worst with uh, – with California. I, I will also say, <laughs> Seth, that these – I don't like unemployment figures normally because they exclude a massive portion of the American population known as discouraged workers, Fair people enough. who have not looked for a job people in more than six months. People who just gave up looking for work. And so you know that, that the state says Nevada has a 7 percent employment rate and, and another state also has a 7 percent. Without knowing the rates of discouraged workers, we actually couldn't tell who has more unemployment. Fair, fair, fair enough. And the reason and, – and, and, there's a there's an economic reason for Nevada, but there's also a political one, and it's interesting. I was just thinking, I thought Nevada. When did it become a blue state? It's another state that went from red to blue. Right. This is a Democratic governor, two Democratic senators, and of the four-person congressional de- delegation, three are Democrats. This Nevada has gone the way of Colorado. I guess we'll have a test in Virginia. Right. I guess that test is. Uh, is uh, is the first Tuesday of November, and we'll see if Virginia is going to stay in its blue position or not. But it's an interesting thing, and I, I struggle thinking to think of Arizona's kind of at a tipping point. And it, it's it's interesting they don't go the other direction. The energy is on the side of blue; it's not on the side of red. It seems to me. I hope I'm wrong. I don't know what your sense of that is. Well, uh, I, I'm not sure actually. I, I think that on some level we run the risk of looking at too recent uh, a data set, sure. right? That we're constraining ourselves only to the last eight years of mm-hmm. change in politics. You know, the Reagan Revolution absolutely showed that there are periods in American history where Republicans can turn states red. That can happen. Yep. Yep. Um, and so it's also, it's partially internal migration. It's partially demographics that we're seeing, you know, states with significant overages of, of net blue populations. Your Californias, for instance, are effectively exporting blue votes to other states. And that is, you know, uh, compacting the market, the margins in those states. Um, but, uh, uh, I'm sorry. To, to your point, though, Seth. Yeah. Um, no, well, well, well. The point is, it's been an awfully long time since we've seen a blue state flip to the red, and I and I and the trend has been more in the other direction. And I don't know if there's a number on the economic level because people vote probably with their pocketbooks more than they vote with anything else. You know, Seth. Mind, usually, it, it also occurs to me that this might be the large overreach that allows us to switch that message. We haven't had a midterm since the pandemic started. And though we didn't want initially the pandemic to become politicized, it clearly has been. And it seems that Democrats are on the side of of lockdown and restrictions and strict harm mitigation from the virus. And Republicans are on the side of trying to balance priorities uh, uh, with, you know, between public health and the economy and all of these other things. And, And that we tend more towards defaulting towards letting people make their own choices. But. We get all this, too, at a very interesting time. So this is in part some of my thinking behind are we deliberately trying to crash a system here? It's part of the thinking I've had when you see the COVID mitigation strategies. You see this employment situation, which is a very weird one. And then what you're doing is you're also flooding the system with a load of new new, well, new migrants into the country that – well, I'll tell you. I mean, they either have to go back or go to work. One of the two. And, sure. it, you know, it looks like this administration is trying to do the second. Um, what is that going to do for our economy? What is that going to do to the American work for, worker and the, and the workforce? It's, it's, 
it, 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 you put these things together and you wonder if something bigger is going on that is more on the deliberate side. Oh, there absolutely is. Let's let me, talk let me about have that you respond the on the other side. I'm Seth. He's Lou. And we are at 602 Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Lewis Hallman is our guest, as he is every Tuesday at this hour. Did you want to make one more economic political point before I took us to another topic that we were We had talk- been yeah. talking about uh, deliberate changes. Yeah, the in- forcing of conf- – the confluence of factors that are bringing up – that are coming around with flooding the zone with new immigrants. Right, right. So, in a hard economic moment. Yeah. So on that, there, there are some really interesting areas to think about uh, that are sort of related to this. So with uh, uh, all of the net migration that's happening in the U.S., our population has still been increasing year over year. But uh, not by much. Our replacement rate uh, um, from our domestic birth rate is is not being met. I think we are sitting at somewhere around 1.75 uh, births per couple natively. So uh, we would be losing population were it not for immigration. Now, the the issue that we have is that when you have a society that shrinks year over year over year – it actually can cause enormous amounts of social instability and unrest. It triggers lots of um, the same kinds of, of psychological mechanisms that we have that are, that are triggered in response to things like extended drought and famine and the like. And very often you see that these are exactly the kind of the kinds these are these are necessary but not sufficient conditions for the kinds of things that you would see like in Rwanda in the 1990s with the Hoodoos and the Tutsis where we have you know, uh, 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 conflicts over over groups and those conflicts crystallizing into ethnic conflicts. And so in some level, the effort to import immigrants to to bolster our population keeps us from that very, very, very ugly possible future for which I am very grateful. But uh, there's another way in which we are importing uh, uh, immigrants predominantly as a voting base. Now, the current paradigm between the two parties is that the the Democratic Party is, is largely the party of ethnic minorities. Um, as the decades pass, currently the U.S. is, I think, 60-40 white versus all others. As the decades pass, we'll see that number flip and eventually reverse. And I think this will cause a pretty significant reshuffle in American politics. You can't if, – if whites are no longer a monolithic block with all of the political power, you can't then spend all of your days making the points that all of the evils in the world are a result of whites being an evil monolithic block with all of the political power. <laughs> That's interesting. And so this change I think will force the Democratic Party to reckon inside of itself and have to actually take firmer stands and, and cause its very, very delicate – sort of tapestry of, of uh, alliances to explode. Unless, of course, again, part and parcel of this is to get something part and parcel of that. There was a huge debate in this country over the last four years. You're aware of it. 
over whether nationalism is a good thing or a bad thing. And I, I was thinking about it when you were talking about Rwanda. And when you think about some of these failed states, is that a fair phrase for some of these countries? Oh, yeah, failed states, failed absolutely. State. Some of these failed states, you think about what their biggest problem is. People can certainly talk about governmental structures and corruption and all that. But a lot of it is a lack of nationalism, too. A lot of it is this tremendous division based on – Can I make a distinction? You may. Okay, so so I, whenever I'm talking about nationalism, I find it really useful to distinguish between two types of nationalism, okay. between ethnic nationalism and civic nationalism. Sure. Good. Ethnic nationalism is actually what the Rwandan people had far too much of at the time. Right. It's what causes Afghanistan to be a paralyzed, you know, a, a quagmire because everything is tied up in tribal right. blood loyalty. Right. Ethnic nationalism is what the Nazis practice. It's what we all abhor, and it is what the media all too often accuses reasonable people of believing. What I am is a civic nationalist. I believe that we can come together, irrespective of our race and ethnicities, believe in a common creed, say liberalism and democracy and the rule of law, and that from there, we can form a successful society. Yes, based on, based on a unifying theme and principle. And, and, and this is so easy to illustrate, it's almost too cheap to do, that people don't get it. Um, and, it's, and it's this. I look at it every single day. There's a, there's a picture of Larry Elder right in front of me. I have almost everything more in common with him than I do with Chuck Schumer or Jerry Nadler. Right. Right. When we come back, I want to talk about this interest. I knew you would have a theory on this, Lewis. And there's this story, horrible, horrible story out of Philadelphia of a, of a man raping a woman. And people found it more important to get it on video on their camera, to get it on camera, than to actually intervene and help the woman. I want to talk about that. With Let's you do it. When we come back. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Lewis Holman with us. Lewis, I knew you'd have a theory on this or at least some interesting things to say about it. Terrible, terrible, awful story uh, out of um, Philadelphia. Uh, I'll just give you one headline. Uh, man accused of raping woman on crowded train. And the people were rather than intervening or helping or even using their phones to call for help. They were more interested in taping it, making sure. Is that the word you use, taping? They were more. Recording? Recording it, video recording it on their cell phones. Of course, it takes one back to the famous case, overblown and overstated at the time by the narrative, but still kind of the case everyone thinks of, which is the Kitty Genovese case out of Queens, New York, 1964, where the theory was people were just standing around and thought someone else would do something or they didn't want to get involved. You see, you know, you see, you see, you see variations of this theme. Oh, I didn't want to get involved, and the story gets worse and worse when you look at who was arrested for it. It was someone who was at one point in immigration's custom enforcement detention. He was released. He was on a visa overstay. All that's a part of it. But I wanted to talk to you about what we might call, I don't know. There's there's a there's a confluence of several toxic things going on here. It's that no one, of course, wanted to help. More importantly, that rather than use their phones to call for help, they wanted to use their phones to have a recording of it. I'm not thinking that they were doing that so that they could collect evidence for the police. I'm not thinking that was their reason because they weren't even interested in calling the police. 
there's all of this going on, and of course it involves what Americans, I think in part, warp their brains over with regard to how much time they spend and think how important screen time on their phones is, social media time, video time, that sort of thing. Two and a half, two hours, three minutes on average for the American today is spent on social media. This is going on. And then there's this group think that's described by these Kitty Genovese effects called pluralistic ignorance, where people might have their morality or their instinct. I'm going to let you unload on everything I'm saying in a second. Their morality or their instincts are determined by their crowd, by their peer group, rather than their own perhaps individual morality. Unload. All right. There are three places I'd like to go with sure. with this. Place the first. Um, we have had a political climb where since uh, the end of May last year, uh, at least half of the country has been bellowing from the top of their lungs that, that calling the police on someone who happens to be black, irrespective oh. of, the, of the time, place, and circumstances, is a violent and racist act. Uh-huh. So that might be a factor, number one. Number two, the most common job that children aspire to be in this day and age is YouTuber. And so this then has led us to a a time and a world where many of us don't see the world around us to see it and live in it, but we see it as a gold mine of potential online currency to be mined if we can only be so lucky as to record the interesting or viral things that are happening around us and upload them so that nameless strangers may laugh and jeer at them. Uh, The third place I think I'd like to go with this is a distinction between types of responsibility. Um, You might conceptualize responsibility in two ways, as sort of a a general responsibility and a final responsibility. Let me see if I can articulate this. So uh, in an active shooter situation, I have a general responsibility, if I am not trapped and if I'm unarmed, to get myself, children if I have them, loved ones if I have them, out from the situation as soon as possible. I do not have a responsibility to stop the shooter except unless under very, very specific circumstances. Now, a police officer does have the obligation. He has the final responsibility of dealing with this, of stopping the shooter. And so then, you know, as long I can fulfill my general responsibility and not have to deal with the ultimate cause of the situation around me. You could also do a similar argument with if your house is on fire. My job, if my house is on fire, is to get out, not to put the fire out. The firefighter's job is to put the fire out. And so in this way... We, we might see everyone on that train as falling afoul of this dichotomy where they, have, they think that they have some kind of general responsibility maybe to monitor, but they don't believe that they are – they're not the authority here. They're not the final, uh, 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 the final arbiter. And yeah, so the they don't agent, believe right. mm-hmm. that it is their obligation or their duty to involve themselves. And I, I would also note that government since the 60s – has been doing its utmost to disabuse us of our responsibilities. You know, even follow the science, follow the science is nothing more than a a chant to abjure yourself of the responsibility to learn what's happening around you about the pandemic and listen blindly to whatever the talking heads are saying. This at a time when the left tells us the most important thing is individual agency. And my truth. They, kind of a funny thing. Well, no, they say that their truth is, but never any obligation. Okay, okay, right? okay. Your, your, the, tr- yeah. the importance is to respect yeah. the feeling. This is actually also coming at a time 
uh, where we are now seeing, I think Dave Chappelle in his, his yeah. most recent special did a very good job on pointing this out, where you can get in more trouble for making fun of a gay person's feelings than you can for shooting a black person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is the this is the priority that we, we end up with. Mm-hmm. Once we, we, you know, rather than taking things seriously and having responsibility to ourselves and our neighbor, we decide that all we need to do as individuals is just engage in performative allyship and leave it all to the commissars. Because the left has done a really good job of redefining safe things and turning them into unsafe things. They have done a really good job of this speech equals violence business. Sure. And that's what they've done to Dave Chappelle. That's what they do with Federalist Society members at Yale. I have seen it argued that calling the police on a black man is violence. And by that logic, anyone who did call the police on this particular person would be committing violence. We had this at ASU. We had the two students doing nothing more than studying with a bumper sticker on, I think, one of their computers that said, respect the blue or blue lives matter, something like that. And the people who racially assaulted them said, your presence as well as your whiteness as well as your statement is violence right and it's an interesting tell by the left too because they know somehow that speech is safe they just try to redefine what speech is right so they call it violence it's an interesting thing we'll come back with a final thought on this boy this hour went fast you put a political philosophy guy with a philosophy guy and You would think it would make time seem long, but we've managed to shrink it. I'm Seth Eastlew. We'll be right back. Here's a young man, Lewis Hallman, with a lot of great thoughts. And you were talking to me on the break with something uh, Jonathan Haidt over at New York University has been spending some time on. I thought it was interesting. Maybe a good way to close the show to think about for tomorrow. Absolutely. So Jonathan Haidt uh, has been writing for about a decade and a half on what he calls moral foundation theory, trying to figure out where our impulses towards right and wrong come from. And he's done quite a lot of research on this fact, also by political inclination. And what's very interesting about this is that he, he identifies five moral foundations that are sort of the, the principal values that we all use. And what's interesting is that, that leftists respond to two of them exclusively, almost exclusively. Those are uh, egalitarianism and harm avoidance. Now, conservatives respond to all five moral foundations. They also uh, use those two as well as uh, sanctity, hierarchy, and uh, – oh, forgive me. I'm, I'm forgetting the other one. It's all right. But uh, uh, what's interesting about this, though, is that because conservatives are receptive to all five of these kind of moral languages and liberals are only receptive to two, harm avoidance and egalitarianism, liberal positions founded on those two points are com- communicable to conservatives. We can understand and empathize with those points and be convinced by them. But conservative positions relying on the other three foundations are not transmittable to liberals in the same way because they don't recognize the validity of those three bases of argumentation. This also explains why, for the last 60 years, we have seen the left seem to slightly edge out every cultural argument that we have been seeing and slowly drag the conversation and society ever more, ever more increasingly towards the left since the great society. Harm care. Fairness, reciprocity, yep. in-group loyalty, authority, respect, purity, sanctity. That would be it. Lewis Hallman, you encourage one about life generally, as is said by George Eliot and Daniel Deronda. Thank you for being here. And to the rest of you, thank you for being with us as well. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And-
class dismissed.